0: Well, good morning. Wasn't that a wonderful time of worship and prayer? It's so good to see you all this morning on another hot August day. My name's Tim Penning, if you don't know me. I preached here earlier this summer. I'm one of the elders at Harvest, and normally I'm at the Spring Lake campus. So if you don't know me, that's who I am. We are in a series on Jonah, and we're going to continue that today. Uh, if you're visiting with us, so go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Jonah chapter three. Jonah chapter three. It's a four-part book, short book of the Bible, but very important. And as you're looking there, uh, let me tell you, I'll give you a little bit of a recap of where we've been so far. So everybody knows the story of Jonah, even even a lot of non-believers. They heard about Jonah and the whale. So in chapter one. It's, it's about God calling Jonah and Jonah making a bad decision. Jonah runs. In chapter 2, uh, we read about Jonah praying inside the whale. Uh, after he, he does a little reverse fishing, right? He didn't catch a fish. A fish caught him. In God's mercy and grace, it was catch and release. So the whale vomits him up on the land. And that's where we find him today, our hero. The hero of the story of Jonah is standing on a beach. We don't know how much time transpires uh, before we get into Jonah 3, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, Before we read that passage, let me give a little context. So so Nineveh is where Jonah goes today. We're going to talk about Jonah finally doing what he's supposed to do, going to Nineveh, and then what's Nineveh's response. And we're going to find some application for ourselves in this, too. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. It had been a long-term enemy of Israel. And and Nineveh existed near modern-day Mosul in northern Iraq. So we just prayed about Afghanistan, and and we know uh, Iraq was in the news a lot. You may have heard about Mosul. That's where it was. Uh, Nineveh at the time was known for its cruelty to its enemies. Now Israel was one of its enemies, In fact, what Jonah had been doing is prophesying in Israel, in the northern kingdom, working with King Jeroboam II to reestablish its borders. So this might be one of the reasons Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. They were an enemy. They were even cruel to each other within Nineveh. They were a very evil and wicked nation. Another piece of context, if you go to Genesis 10, verse 11, you don't have to go there right now, but it records that Nimrod, a name that means mighty warrior, And he was a descendant of Ham, who was a son of Noah. And Genesis says he built the city. A mighty warrior built the city of Nineveh. Presumably quite a long time ago, shortly after the time of Noah. Now what's interesting is that Jonah's name means dove. So God sends a dove to the city built by a mighty warrior. I find that kind of interesting as well. As for the city itself, in the research I've done, there's a variety of of sources. Some say 120,000 people populated the city of Noah. Some say as many as 600,000. Now, that could be because they only counted men or they only counted adults or there are just various estimates. But it was a very populous city. It also says that it's, it's about 60 miles across. Now, some say that could have been the circumference. You walked around the outside some say 60 miles could have been the diameter that would make a difference but it doesn't really matter it, it was just it's huge and some say it would take three days to walk around it or through it so what we need to know today is that Nineveh was a very large city in geography and population you could say that it covered a whole Mesopotamia I had to use that line I'm sorry it was big It was also about 500 miles away. There's no trains, there's no motor vehicles. For Jonah to go there to the city he feared and hated, it would be an arduous journey. Are you getting this? Are you getting all of this going on, what might be going on in in Jonah's head? Now, now, now Nineveh also had many gods, but they had heard of Yahweh. They had heard of the God of Israel. Um, Also, Assyria historians will point out at this time um, had been a very strong nation but it had been experiencing decline it had seen a solar eclipse and in those days that might have caused fear today you know scientists explain that um, there had been political threats and revolts there had been famines there had been plagues you know earlier we just prayed about what's going on in afghanistan we've seen lawlessness in our country there, you know, so for us, that leads to God, and maybe this was God at work preparing Nineveh with all of these hardships to hear the voice of God through Jonah and to respond. But I give you that as context. Okay, have you found Jonah 3? Small book, it's only a couple pages in my Bible. We're going to read it. I'd like to read the whole chapter, it's not very long, and then go back and make some application. Before I do that, I'm going to plant a little seed. Normally all of our sermons at Harvest have a big idea. Today it's a big question and we will answer it at the end but the big question today is this. Can we know God's intentions? And I'm gonna leave it there and we'll come back to it. So chapter 3. Again Jonah recently spit out of a whale and the book says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it, proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. Some of that context I just gave you. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's the message. We'll come back to that too. The Ninevites believed God. Notice there's nothing between the message and the Ninevites believing God. It seems in the text immediate. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth, which was a sign of repentance. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call, him urgent, call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Here's the good part. Who knows? That's the title of the sermon. Who knows? God may yet relent. And with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. So that's Jonah 3. Let's, let's look at what we can learn from this. And the first thing we can learn today is rather obvious, right? God is a God of second chances. So for each of the points today, we're going to look at what do we learn from Jonah, what do we learn from Nineveh, and then how can we apply that to ourselves today. The Bible is always rich in application, and you'll find that today as well. So Jonah, second chances for Jonah, pretty obviously, right? He had disobeyed, he was told to go to Nineveh, 500 miles uh, to the east across deserts, instead he took a boat and was going to go to Spain, and you know the story. God could have let the whale swallow Jonah. Get rid of Jonah, he disobeyed, that's the end of it, and be done with it. What a lesson that would have been about disobeying God. Right? He will smite you if you disobey. But God, true to his character, simply asks Jonah again. Notice that's all he does. There's no Harsh rebuke. I mean, he had the experience with the fish. Um, And then God just says in chapter 3, it it says he asked him a second time, now go and do what I told you. Doesn't that sound like a loving father after discipline? So what a lesson there about God's mercy. What about Nineveh? Second chances for Nineveh. Well, as we discussed, a very sinful nation, wicked to its enemies, wicked even internally, to their own citizens, one against another. And they were headed for a wrath that could arguably be called deserved. They, they, They had it coming, right? But God spares the whole city after they showed humility. Nineveh is a Gentile nation, by the way, not God's chosen people. That's interesting, isn't it? So much of the Bible is about Israel and its relationship with God. You want to know something interesting here? You don't have to now, but maybe later. Go back two books in your Bible to the prophet Amos. We're in a series in the Bible called the Minor Prophets. Not minor because they're unimportant, but they're shorter books. Amos is a longer book. He was a contemporary of Jonah prophesying in Israel at about the same time and he's preaching destruction for Israel he's preaching destruction for Israel now at the end there's reconciliation but Jonah goes to Nineveh and as we'll see God will spare it and at the same time Amos is preaching to Israel uh, woe because of their complacency they had had some good times under Jeroboam the The kingdom was being restored, its its borders reestablished. Amos 5 verse 6 says this, Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. So there's a second chance message to Israel too, a warning and what they need to do. But we also see Nineveh being given a second chance. And this is an important lesson, too. We see when we get to the New Testament in the gospel and Paul and Peter going in their separate ways, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for Jew and Gentile alike, the whole world. God loves the whole world, and Israel talks about that to Israel. He says, or Amos does. Why do you think you're special? Does not God also love other nations? So second chance for Nineveh. So then Jonah had his second chance. Nineveh had his sec- their second chance. What about us? Do you think, raise your hand if you think you've had a second chance when it comes to God, right? All of us. How about third and fourth and fifth? You don't have to raise your hand again. Almost daily, several times a day. That is the nature of the Christian walk repentance and renewal. But let me tell you this if you think, if you came to church today, maybe you're visiting, you're on vacation, you thought you'd come to church, or maybe you've been going through something and you thought, I need to go to church maybe there's an answer. If you think you're not good enough for church, or if you think you're not good enough for ministry in the name of God, you're missing the point of Jonah. You're missing the point of the Gospel. It's all about second chances and we have them too. That's the source of the joy of the Christian walk, is the second chance, the burden relieved, the salvation that we can get in Christ. But we have to know, too, that the second chance is conditioned on humble repentance, just as it was with Israel and Nineveh and Jonah in chapter 2, praying to God in the whale. And then he was reconciled. And so just as we should not run from God as Jonah did at first, neither should we convict ourselves or assume God's wrath. We should repent and accept the mercy of a loving God but that relates to a very important concept which is the second thing that we can learn today and that has to do with discipline and the point is this how we respond to discipline matters it matters how many of you have children how many of you have disciplined them do they all respond the same Is the response always appropriate? How many of you have employees or staff who report to you? Do you sometimes have to discipline them? Is the response all the same? No, it matters. It's not automatic, there's more than one way. So let's look at Jonah. Now Jonah responded to the discipline, being in the whale, coming out of the whale. He completed his mission, but he did so with reluctant obedience. Notice in verse 3 how immediate and positive his response seems. It just says, so Jonah goes to Nineveh. God says, now, for the second time, go to Nineveh. Jonah goes. Seems pretty good, right? He's obeying, he's responding to that discipline. And think about it. What could he do but obey? Changing careers to be a fisherman, probably not an option. Might be a little freaked out by the sea at this point. He was a prophet. What do prophets do? They share what God says. It's not like he could join some nonprofit organization. Okay, second dad joke. Sorry about that. He's a prophet. He responds. And after everything he'd been through, of course he would. Can you imagine being swallowed by a fish, spit up on dry land, and then God says, okay, I'm going to ask you twice? You're probably going to do it, right? But, like I said, there's a problem here. And you'll see more of this in chapter four. I'll save that for next week. It's his attitude. So in my day job, I'm a professor. I teach public relations and advertising. We talk to students about awareness, attitude, and action. People have to be aware of something before they adopt an attitude about it, and usually you need that positive attitude before you'll take the action. But it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes people take the action, but their attitude hasn't changed. And as believers in Jesus Christ, that can be a problem. You can go to church, you can read the Bible, you can pray, you can attend small group, but where's your attitude? You can do the things, you can enact the behavior, but your attitude isn't there. Jonah doesn't have a good attitude about this. Look at his message in verse 4. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. In doing research for the sermon, this is the shortest revival message ever. And it's actually not a very good one. What's missing? Anybody want to guess? Amos does it for Israel. Elsewhere you see it, repent and be saved, right? There's some kind of action you can do. Jonah's not giving them an option. It's like those those guys you see with the the end is near signs or the megaphones saying, you're all going to hell. That's not a very good gospel message, right? Our job and Jonah's job as a prophet is not to judge, but to share God's word. We don't know that that Jonah shortened the message or what, but his attitude wasn't very good. No call for repentance, no indication of a second chance that we just talked about, not a Billy Graham sermon, not a harvest sermon, I would think, either. Tim Keller, who many of you know, he's a he's a pastor, he's written a lot of wonderful books. He has a book called Rediscovering Jonah, The Secret of God's Mercy. And in it he says that Jonah enjoyed preaching wrath. He enjoyed preaching wrath, and he was shocked when God showed mercy. Tough question. How many of you have ministered to somebody, and you just wanted them to get what they had coming? Maybe you didn't say, God, smite them. The non-believers in our lives, should we not rejoice at their salvation? Should that not be the vibrant desire of our hearts? Jonah didn't respond well to the discipline that he had received. He did the deed, but he did not adopt the heart change. He's still questioning God's purpose and result. And with regard to our theme today, he didn't even seem to be thinking about God's intentions. We're asking, can we know God's intentions? It seems that Jonah didn't even care. So let's talk about Nineveh. How did Nineveh respond to discipline? The discipline was a very short message from Jonah, very brief discipline, but they responded almost immediately with humility and repentance. The king himself orders fasting, sackcloth, ashes, giving up evil ways. And notice this too, not just for the people, but for the animals the beasts, the herd, the flock, he says they shouldn't eat anything. And, and several times he mentions even the animals. It's as if the, the king's response in the decree he gives is so extreme, so fully responsive to the discipline that he even includes the animals. I think that's a lesson. It also says from the greatest to the least in the Ninevite society, they responded. It's complete and total For this huge city stunning really when you think about it but here too just as we wonder if jonah's obedience was maybe reluctant was nineveh's repentance sincere again we talk about children when you think about discipline how many of you have told a a small child a son or daughter maybe even a teenager now stop that and, and go apologize to your brother okay It's a response to discipline but is it sincere right or if you are a supervisor of staff at work and you discipline some somebody and try to tell them no you need to do it a different way do they say thank you or do they say okay and then they grumble or complain and they're resentful at your intervention in them doing their job how we respond to discipline matters We don't know exactly if their repentance was sincere, but certainly the king didn't seem to know God's character of mercy and forgiveness, of the relationship between repentance and restoration and salvation. God may have prepared them for this message, as I said before, with the plagues and the political revolts, and maybe their response to discipline was in fear. We just don't want to get destroyed. Sackcloth, ashes, uh, fasting, even the animals, we're throwing it all in there in a desperate attempt to not be destroyed. What's sad about this is there doesn't seem to be a relationship that happens. In fact, I told you to go two books back in the Bible. If you go two books forward, again, you don't have to do this now, but if you're interested later, go to the prophet Nahum. And that book is entirely about the destruction of Nineveh. The subsequent generations did not maintain discipline. So Nineveh, in our story today, repents. They receive the word of the Lord, they repent, and they are saved. And it's about 150 years later, a long time, a generation or two, but the point is they did not maintain that discipline. The lesson here is discipline is an ongoing process. It's not a one-and-done. Again, with children, how many times you say to them, how many times do I have to tell you? Well, the answer, mom and dad, is many, right? Discipline is an ongoing uh, effort. So how do we relate all of this to us then? How do we respond to discipline? Think about this honestly in your walk with God, the discipline you've received from God directly or through, by God through others perhaps. Have you responded appropriately? In order to do that, we have to understand maybe what discipline is. Discipline isn't just punishment, a spanking, a timeout, um, the the wrath of God. That can be a form of discipline, but the larger picture of discipline is that it's instruction. It's instruction, it's education, it's guidance disciplining you to do the right thing, to walk the right path. So I told you I'm a professor, and in, in higher education, a discipline is something to focus on. It's an area of knowledge. It results in in deep and broad knowledge and expertise. At Grand Valley, where I teach, there are are more than 80 different majors that a student can declare. Mathematics, chemistry, business, communication, my field of advertising and public relations. And these are called disciplines. And professors are scholars in their discipline. And they should be. They should be experti- expert in that. And students, too, they study, they focus on those academics. Another way to think about discipline is with athletics. Athletic training. It's repetitive, hard work to develop what we ultimately see as talent. But when you see LeBron James or Steph Curry, and if you don't know basketball, these are basketball stars. If you see LeBron James doing his marvelous thing on the basketball court, or Steph Curry is known for the ability to hit three-point shots from way outside, way far from the basket. What, what What you have to remember is that even now, after many years of an already successful career, Steph Curry will go to a gym by himself and shoot that ball again and again and again. He's already got the contract, he's being paid, he's won a lot of games, but that's discipline. I happen to be a runner. You don't just run once and say, "Okay, I trained, and then show up for a marathon or even a 5K. You run every day or most days. And you run in different ways. And over time, you develop strength and endurance and stamina. The same is true for us in our Christian faith. What are elements of discipline that we have coming to church, worshiping, reading the Bible, prayer, fellowship with other believers? That is the discipline that we have as believers. Now we we saw what happened to Jonah in Nineveh and and that's not just them choosing what we would call self-discipline, that is discipline imposed on them and sometimes God does that in our lives too. And this often happens through what we call a trial. I can get a little personal here and talk about my life. I see some of you know me, but uh, if you don't, my wife was diagnosed with uh, stage four cancer in 2012. I would call that a significant trial. The breast cancer spread to the brain in 2013. And since then, you know, she's had 10 surgeries, a lot of therapies, and now she's just a basket of side effects, uh, dealing with things. It's been very hard. I can tell you positively that at the beginning we thought she had maybe two, five years. Um, we celebrated her birthday a couple weeks ago. It's been nine and a half, by God's grace. I've been walking alongside men just coincidentally this year, three men whose wives died and, and walked alongside them, uh, literally going for walks with them in some cases, but talking with them a lot as their wives were ailing and then as the inevitable became clear and then since then after they passed away. Uh, what happens when you go through a trial is God is preparing you for service too. First, he disciplines you. I, I, I adopted the message to myself that when life gets far from perfect, you get closer to God. The farther your life is from perfect, the closer you are to God. I've seen that again and again in my life and other people's lives, too. Now, something beautiful my wife said to me, again, we were runners, and even through much of cancer, um, because of a hip injury right now, she can't run, but we were running. In that first year in the middle of treatment and I remember one of the most beautiful things she ever said to me is how is God going to use this not if but how that through this trial God would be glorified that's an appropriate response to discipline pastor Dave at the time um, the church was, was relatively young we had been members only for a short time I quickly got involved in service and I remember Dave at some point I don't remember it was initially or after her brain surgery, he texted me, don't waste your suffering. At first I looked at it and I'm like, dude, I need comfort, what's this? But it took me 30 seconds to understand what he was saying. That in your trials, and if you're going through trials, it's very easy to feel that you are in a valley. But as one of the songs we just sang says, in the valley I lift your name. Trials can be discipline in our lives. And it's how we respond to it that matters. How is God going to use this? It could be through us. It could just be the discipline is bringing us closer to God. Maybe through us, we bring glory to God in the eyes of others. And both have happened in our case. If you want to really understand discipline, let me give you kind of a definition I worked up. Discipline is an act of corrective mercy that grows our knowledge and understanding of God and prepares us for service to him. So discipline is not punishment. It's loving guidance. Okay? If you look at Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11, it'll be up on the screen. You can go there in your Bible, too. Let me just read this to you a minute. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. In that first part, The author of Hebrews is quoting Proverbs 3, verses 11 to 12. And then it continues in verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. Not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we might share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Righteousness and peace. You want that? Accept the discipline as a gift. And by the way, what word sounds like discipline that we hear in the Bible? Disciple. We are called, the Great Commission at the end of Matthew is to make disciples of all nations. We need to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And the path to discipleship is discipline. Okay, so I mentioned being used by God as a result of discipline. That leads to our third point today. God's will always prevails. Did you know that the word Israel actually means to wrestle with God? Kind of interesting, right? That story from Jacob wrestling the angel. angel. But God's purpose, His will, will always prevail. We see that in Jonah, we see that in Nineveh, and we can see that in ourselves as well. There's a principle in all of Scripture and life here that God's purpose prevails. If you look at Isaiah the prophet Isaiah chapter 46, verses 10 to 11. My purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. There's no doubt about that. Jonah went to Nineveh and preached. He said what God told them to say. And even though, as we talked about, Jonah had a bad attitude, their God's word and what God wanted to happen happened. Nineveh repented and he spared them. Jonah tried to flee. To go to Spain, he ends up in Nineveh. It didn't matter, people, if Jonah understood the mission, if he understood God's purpose or the method. The result is what matters, God's intentions matter, and, and, and that will happen. With Nineveh, they repented and God spared them. God got to show his mercy on a big stage. Maybe the purpose here was that it was going to show a lesson to Israel that his mercy was for all, that even as Israel was wrestling with God, as Amos was prophesying to them, God was sparing Nineveh, their enemy. Or maybe it was a way to show Israel that, yes, you need to repent. Look what can happen. Tim Keller, who I mentioned before, says that repentance is a work of God. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 25, it says this, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of truth. So repentance is a gift of God. And his will will prevail. So let's bring this back around to us then. Let me say this. God will use us. Another book on Jonah from Sinclair Ferguson says this. God is determined that his servants will serve him. He does not give up on his designs for our lives. A couple of illustrations of this, too. Somebody I know in full-time ministry, I love him, I respect him, I've been blessed by him. But in a recent season, he was very distraught in ministry. Wanted to give up. And I prayed about that, and I wrestled with that, and I, I had anguish with him in that. And I remember going to him, and talking to him, and hearing his heart, and saying to him, We cannot choose the circumstances of our calling. Don't give up. God will accomplish his purpose. Even though right now it's hard, even though right now the result is not happening, is not evident, you're being attacked, whatever it is, God will accomplish his purpose in and through you. I could tell another personal story about this. Two years ago, in spite of everything my wife and I are going through, we felt called to take in a seven-year-old boy. His mother, because of her behaviors and addictions, was in trouble with the law, and uh, we struggled with this. We talked a lot about it, and we said, let's do this. We wanted to be able to provide care for for the boy so that his mother could get the treatment that the court had ordered her to receive. And some of you know this, especially at the Spring Lake campus, we think that over five months we made a big difference in that little boy's life. Stopped waking up three times a night screaming. Learned how to use the bathroom appropriately, how to interact with other people with grace. Started reading. Loved God's Word, by the way. Started doing math. But in the meantime, in the background, as we are doing this thing and seeing this result, We were not only not being thanked, and we didn't do it for thanks, but we were being attacked, lied about, slandered by by the boy's mother, by the grandparents, and being harassed by the state officials. Instead of getting the treatment that the court ordered for the mother, they just wanted to arrange weekend meetings, and they were nitpicking on us and attacking us. And at the end of all this, the boy was restored with the mother who had not made any changes in her life. Do you think maybe we were frustrated? Very. And a few months before it ended, I remember walking from my office on campus to my car. And I park a long way away, otherwise I lose my car. If I park way in the back, I know where it is. And I've enjoyed having that as a decompression zone as I walk from work to my car. And I remember transitioning from being at work to what was waiting for me at home. And I said, God, I can't do this anymore. I want to give up. And I heard Jesus say, and not, not the clouds parted in an audible voice, but maybe some of you have heard this too in your mind. Jesus said, don't give up. And I said, but, but the people were helping. They don't even deserve it. And Jesus said, did, did anybody deserve what I did for them? Or was it an act of grace? Wow. I kept walking and I said, but we're being attacked. We're doing this good thing. We're being attacked. And Jesus said, I suffered and died and was still attacked. I mean, this, when you walk with God and you read his word, it comes back to you. So I persisted. And I don't know, and my wife doesn't know, and we still cry about it sometimes. Why did we do this? And many good friends from Harvest have said, given us comfort and counsel, and said, you've made a difference in that little boy's life. It might not show today, but he will always remember that. And who knows in God's timing what will happen and what his purpose was. So we just have to trust that. We don't know what we don't know, but we know God's character and his faithfulness. Let me answer the big question now as we near closing. The king of Nineveh thought maybe they had a chance if they repented. The title of the sermon is Who Knows? It comes from the king of Nineveh. Who knows? God may yet relent. I imagine him with his hands up. It's almost as if talking to the whole country and even the animals and doing all of these things that he's crossing his fingers and hoping God will spare him. People of God, you don't have to cross your fingers. You can point your finger at the cross. You don't have to say who knows. You know. God's word tells us. Hopefully your experience tells you. You know God's intention in your life. We don't always know his purposes, his timing, his method. We do know his purposes. We know his intentions. Most of all, we know his intentions for us. First Thessalonians 5 verse 9 is a great reminder of this. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Tim Keller also talks about the Jonah principle, which is a good summary reminder The Jonah principle is that God's power is shown in weakness, and out of death, man receives life. You can see this in Matthew 12, verse 39, verse 41, too. Did you know that Jesus speaks of Jonah a couple of times in the Gospels? This one from Matthew. The Pharisees had asked him for a sign. And Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. All of Scripture leads back to Jesus. Did you know that? All of Scripture. And so we see Jesus talking about Jonah. And don't make the mistake of the Pharisees. If you're looking at your notes, I have something to end with. Jonah was the sign as Jesus mentions. Jonah was a sign, the sign of what? The sign of God's mercy and love and plan and his intentions, the sign of Jesus. Jesus is the source. Remember that. Let that be your guide and your comfort. Jesus is the source of your second chances. All of them. Jesus is the source of your discipline. And remember that discipline is loving and for your good and correction and guidance in the process of making you a disciple, in the process of making you more like Jesus. And Jesus is the source of God accomplishing his purpose in and through you in the world, right? It's a wonderful lesson. It's more than a fish story, isn't it? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word, what a blessing it is to us. We see in it, Lord, your power. We see your righteousness, your holiness, but also your mercy and your instruction. Help us to receive it with joy and gratitude that we can claim what the Bible says we will get through discipline, and that is righteousness and peace. In your holy name we pray, amen.